On April 19, 1995, an explosion from a truck bomb rocked the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, killing 168 people. The domestic terrorists responsible for this bombing, Timothy McVeigh, believe his actions were justified after the government clusterfucks at Ruby Ridge and Waco. Today we're going to take you through his life and times and the tragic consequences that come from being a gullible idiot who knows just enough to be dangerous. Grab a drink and follow us on the journey that is this episode of Hunter Proof History, titled Oklahoma City. Two wrongs make a third wrong. This is Hundred Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts, Chris and Greg. Well, hello again, nerds. Mm. Welcome to 100 Proof History. Yeah, thanks for putting down your Fortnite for a second, getting off TikTok. You know. <laughs> I am your main host, Gregory, and I'm joined always by... Uh, sexy host, that's me, Christopher. Hello, how are you doing? We've gotten a few emails. People don't believe my sexiness. They're not on board with it. So I've decided I'm going to go ahead and tell the truth. If you guys want to find me, I'm on Instagram. It's at Zach Efron. That's me. Like, this whole thing has just been a ruse to try and get you guys, you know, hooked on the podcast. I wanted you to love the podcast for the podcast, not because a very famous, handsome person hosted it. But, you know, here I am, Zach Efron. Nice to meet you. Cats out of the bag. Yeah. That, uh... (laughs) That person on 100proofhistory.com, which is our website, is actually a very attractive lesbian woman. Not me. <laughs> oh, what are, you, what are we talking about today, Chris? Today we are wrapping up our Government versus the People series. I guess that's what I'm calling it. We're talking about Oklahoma City and the bombing that happened there in 1995. And our main source for this is McVeigh. The Inside Story of the Oklahoma City Bombing by Ben Fenwick. What do you think about this book? I want to get your off-the-cuff thoughts. Man, it was different than a lot of other sources because what I like to do, like if I'm at work and have some downtime, is watch documentaries Mm -hmm. and including interviews with like primary sources to where this almost contradicts that a little bit. And I'll try to point that out along the way. But this also would, I guess, focus on some aspects of the story that aren't really covered, that aren't covered as well elsewhere or as in-depth. Yeah. There is a, a source that I think a lot of people use. It's McVeigh's own confession or his own words that he gave to his biographers. But obviously that's going to be slanted towards... Right, that book that was written after he... Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously that's going to be slanted towards whatever Tim wants you to think about him. The th- only thing I didn't really care about this source was... Like, you get through the bombing, and the back half of the book is just about how this guy broke the story of the bombing, or of his confession. And it's like, I don't, I'm I'm here for... Very self-aggrandizing. Yeah, I'm just here for the story, man. I just want to know what happened, not how you came across the information, and how there was questions about, should we publish, or should we not, and you know, all that. But no, it, it is, it's an easy read, it's a quick read. Yeah, you don't lead with the climax. Right, you know right, I mean? yeah. I mean, I do in the bedroom, <laughs> but you're not supposed to... In novel format. Well, Gregory, what are you having to drink today, sir? Today I'm drinking the Burning Chair bourbon. Mm. It's out of California. It's actually finished in wine barrels. 
It's an MGP product, so it's distilled in Indiana. But, uh, you know, nobody cares about that. <laughs> I'm drinking it because the burning of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco would lead to this disaster and the eventual creation of a memorial where each person killed was represented by an empty chair. Nice! The burning chair. Oh, wolf dick, give it to him. No, no, put the erection away. I'm in, uh, I'm in applause. Yeah! <laughs> what are you drinking today, Chris? Uh, today I'm having Stranahan's Single Malt Whiskey. It's cast strength, single barrel, 113 proof. It's basically scotch, but you can't call it scotch because it's not from Scotland. It's from America. It tastes very similar to a Highland scotch. It's, it's actually really good. I'm enjoying it uh, quite a bit. The reason I'm drinking this one, Greg, is because they get their water from Boulder, Colorado, which is where our boy Timothy McVeigh would learn his final fate. Mm, that is tenuous tie-in right there. Yeah, I, I wish I could have done the burning chair thing, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think that was good, but God damn. <laughs> God damn. Oh, yeah, I do want to remind our listeners to go to our website and check out our Patreon. Uh, we just had the drawing. We're a little bit behind based on recording times, but we just had the drawing for our last contest, the H.H. Holmes print. And the winner was Kara from Indiana, and uh, she is a Patreon member, but she's only at the $2 level. That's the, you get the early access to our episodes. And that was enough to win her that awesome prize. And we do have another badass giveaway coming up very soon. So go check out the website, check out the Patreon, you get some early access, get some hangovers, you know, many episodes that we do, and uh, get access to the old episodes. Did I sell it? Did I do better this time, Daddy? Yeah, and the Patreon does give you access to our entire back catalog of episodes, uh, all the previous hangovers we've done. I think we're up to 27 now. We do those weekly on Mondays. Check it out if you have time. That's enough business, Greg. It's time to get down to the lovemaking with this sweet, sweet puppy dog. Are you ready? Sir, are you here for business or pleasure? Both, but mainly <laughs> pleasure. Well, let's get on to it. <laughs> Like, sir, I'm just trying to stamp your passport here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, ma'am. Sorry. Uh, business. Thank you. Uh, is there anything you'd like to declare? I'm gay. Oh, sh no, that's not what I meant. Not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> not the time or the place. I was saving that. I was, I was saving that for my parents. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just so worked up. This is going to be a very eventful trip for me. <laughs> Saving that for my parents and my wife. <laughs> okay, sir, but well, welcome to San Francisco. <laughs> Timothy McVeigh was born on April 23rd, 1968 in Lockport, New York, and moved to Pendleton, New York at the age of 10 when his parents split up. He had a fairly normal childhood. Later on in life, he would claim he was bullied and had fantasies of fighting back. Which, again, this is... Who doesn't? This is his defense team or his his biographers saying, oh, yeah, he wants to strike back against bullies. Let's. We see this a lot where they reach back in their childhood to try and find things to explain why they're such dickheads as adults. And, you know... Oh, yeah, look for that excuse. Yeah. I was, I was picked on, so now I'm going to kill a whole bunch of people. Yay. I'm the hero. Yeah. Oh, that justifies it. Yep. Case dismissed. 
According to McVeigh, when he was 10 or 11, his friends started to drink and look at pornographic magazines, which seems a little early, but, you know, it's upstate New York. God, yeah, dude. (laughs) Tim wanted no part in that, and so he stayed at home playing with G.I. Joes and pretending to be Captain James Kirk from Star Trek, although later he would admit he was more of a Spock. His defense team would later point out that he also suffered multiple head injuries as a child, including an incident when he was 15 and crashed his bicycle while making a sweet-ass jump off of a ramp. And that was actually a funny story. He hits the ramp and the fucking front tire comes off. He's like, oh, fuck, this is going to suck when I land. And he goes unconscious and the kids run back and tell his dad. And his dad's like, all right, is he dead? Like, no, okay, well, I'll come scrape him up later. It's fine. He'll walk it off, the pansy. Again. Stupid kid. (laughs) No child has ever been bullied or hit their head. And that's why he did what he did. (laughs) He turned out to be a smart, nerdy kid who collected stamps and comic books. He also claimed later to his biographers that he was able to hack into government computers with his Commodore 64. (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but this is bullshit. In reality, he spent most of his time hanging out on the early bulletin board systems of the internet. The old BBS. Yeah, I'm getting real Napoleon Dynamite vibes from this fucking guy. I got my computer hacking skills, my bow staff skills, beating up bullies, you know. All this bullshit that he just makes up. There are some sources that claim that McVeigh was asexual, but according to him, he had sex lots of times. So many times, so many times. Yeah, I don't even know. Bags of sand. That's what I was thinking, exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I bet you, like, yeah, he would go through the same thing if they're sitting around the the poker table. It's like, oh, do you have the braille nipples? You know, the big puffy nipples? What was it like? What did it feel like? He's like, oh, you know. Bags of sand. Just, uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was 17 or 18 when he lost his virginity to an older married woman who he worked with at Burger King. According to him, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah. Doing the Humpty Hump on the Burger King bathroom floor. Remember that song? I know our listeners do. Our listeners who were born in 1995 know the 1989 hit Humpty Hump. I thought it was like by the... The fryer, like the fry fryer. Oh, I don't know. I just know the words to Humpty Hump. That's the rest of my research for the rest of this episode. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, immediately after bragging about that conquest, Tim would be quoted as saying, quote, I don't need to brag about the women I fucked. We kept it quiet, which is just, she goes to another school. You wouldn't know her. That's all that shit is, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Like, yeah, let me tell you about this time I had sex at the Burger King. It was pretty fucking hot. Well, what other times? What other women you hook up with? You know, I don't really want to go into details. Don't ask me questions, man. (laughs) (laughs) I've only got the specifics for one made-up story. (laughs) Their breasts all felt like a bag of sand, man. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) By the time he was 18, McVeigh had abandoned his love for computers and comics and moved into the exciting world of survivalism. As an aside, Greg, you ever watch Doomsday Preppers? You ever check out that show? Uh, I watched it painfully a couple times. God, those people are so fucking delusional. It is a circus exhibit to me. Yeah, uh, I agree. It's like, because, you know, you think about it, maybe you think about it like, oh, we should prepare for some catastrophic event, but the way they prepare is like, oh, yeah, we're going to hike to the top of this mountain and shoot shit with our crossbows. Oh, yeah. 
Like, what about food or water or shelter? Nah, crossbows, bro. I'm real good with this crossbow. Watch me shoot at this stop sign I stole from the county road, you know? <laughs> Just fucking crazy. When they do have when they do have food and water, it's like, all right, what about antibiotics? Huh? Huh? <laughs> oh, okay. You'll be dead in two years. Twelve of you are gonna live in this buried porta potty. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool. The chlamydia that you all pass around will eventually fucking kill you. <laughs> it's that chlamydia that's hopped up on meth, you know? <laughs> it's like it's energetic COVID chlamydia, so it like <laughs> fucks up your sexual organs. Ah, uh, what? Cancer. What? How's the colon? Boom. How's the colon Dead. work? Let me take the colon apart. Ah, ah, <laughs> 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 All right, now let's reassemble it. Oh fuck! I don't remember. Anyway, I don't remember. <laughs> what's up with these kidneys? <laughs> I'm going to take these two kidneys and make one super kidney. <laughs> super chlamydia! <laughs> well, Tim started collecting rations, tear gas, guns, and armor-piercing ammo. He and a friend bought a small plot of land near Buffalo, and they would go up there on the weekends to shoot. It was also called Mount Timmy, by the way. Very badass name for your land. Mount Timmy. Mount Timmy. I wouldn't. You couldn't pay me to mount Timmy. Meanwhile, you got the uh, the hopped up chlamydia chugging Mountain Dew. You know, just all day. Just, oh, give me some organs. <laughs> <laughs> By the time Tim graduated high school, he had amassed a large collection of firearms. In 1987, McVeigh went to work for Burke Armored Car Service, a company that made payroll deliveries in Buffalo. It was here that Tim began to develop a stronger set of racist beliefs. Growing up in Pendleton, McVeigh wasn't exposed to a lot of black people. In Buffalo, he made deliveries to the check cashing stores where welfare recipients would go at the first of each month. He would claim to see the same people sitting around doing nothing for the rest of the month and started to use racial slurs to refer to them. And we're not going to say, but uh, our main source says it a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. Yeah. It was also during this time as an armored truck guard in Buffalo that McVeigh discovered and fell in love with a book, The Turner Diaries, written by American Nazi Party organizer William Luther Pierce. The book is a racist piece of trash which features a group of white people overthrowing the government and killing all the non-whites in a systematic roundup. You know, never happened before in history. It's just uh, pure fiction. One big plot point is when these racist jackwagons blow up the FBI headquarters using a fertilizer bomb inside a large truck. So I read the Wikipedia synopsis of this book. Mm-hmm. You know, just a little summary. Yeah. It seems awful. I mean, just, you're like, okay, I'm sure it's, you know, veiled this way or that <laughs> no. way. And it's more no. like a dog whistle sort of thing. And I read that and I'm like, holy shit. How could somebody yeah, no. read this and feel comfortable while doing so? Even just reading that summary, it was almost like a little stomach turning like, God, this is awful. How could somebody imagine this? You know, the whole suspension of disbelief thing. How can somebody read this and then it change their opinion in real life? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, other than I hate this fucking author. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah, that's something I would we, encourage anybody listening, if you really want to know what this man was fueled by, 
Just go to the Wikipedia page for the Turner Diaries and just read that summary. It is fucking awful. Yeah, I I started, I thought about it because I have a Scribd uh, subscription that I use a lot of times to research the show. And you could get it for free on there as a PDF. It wasn't even, the author would get no actual benefit out of you reading it. And I'm like, no, I'm going to do the exact same thing you did. Go to Wikipedia and look up just the plot Mm -hmm. synopsis. And I'm like, holy fuck. Like, how do they think, yeah. how do you read that and go, yeah, we're the good guys. I feel really good about the decisions I'm making right now, you know? It's fucking crazy. But I, I think it's, you know, a lot of the times, um, you know, we, we, they're inner city gangs and it's just somebody looking for an identity. And this is the, the white racist looking for somebody to fall in with. And they read that and they're like, oh, that's, that's badass, man. And it's just you catch them at the right time, I guess, the, the formative years right there where they're trying to decide who they are and how the world works. And it just fucks everything up. Yeah. Agreed. Well, strangely enough, in 1988, McVeigh decided to join up with the army. And again, it's just like Randy Weaver. I hate the government. Fuck the government. I'm going to join the army. Here we go. Be a hero. <laughs> <laughs> McVeigh was six foot four and only about 155 pounds. But according to his fellow recruits, Tim was known as someone who thrived in all the physical hardships and regimentation of boot camp. Just a walking fucking broomstick. He even had the haircut. Looks like a fucking... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he definitely did. It was in the army where Tim met two men who had become friends and accomplices. Michael Fortier and Terry Nichols. And he eagerly told them all about his favorite book, Fifty Shades of Grey. No, wait, nope, that's not right. The Turner Diaries. (laughs) This Gumby-looking motherfucker was absolutely obsessed with this book. He was, yeah. He peddled it his entire life. Like, it goes into the future. He's still peddling this fucking book. I firmly believe that had he not discovered this fucking piece of trash, Mm -hmm. the Oklahoma City bombing would never have happened. I Yeah, I I agree with that. I'm not saying he'd be a quality citizen or anything, but this book definitely gave him that idea. Well, you know, you read our main source and it's like the army loved him and his employers loved him. Basically, anything you ask this dude to do, he'd do it. He was very obsessive. He was very fall in line. So let's say in 1988 or whatever, uh, J.K. Rowling releases the first Harry Potter book. He just becomes the most obsessed Harry Potter fucking fan. He doesn't become a racist asshole who uh, bombs a city. So what I'm saying is this is all (laughs) J.K. J.K. Rowling's fault. That's all I'm saying. You remember Terminator 2? Yes. Like when the T-1000, the he's chasing after the car and his arms turn to like the fucking sword hook things and he gets on the car, right? Yeah. Now, separate thing. Do you remember back when the last like Harry Potter book was coming out and somebody like, it was on YouTube, drove by the Barnes and Noble and they shout out like the ending? Like a spoiler, <laughs> and everybody's like fucking yelling at him and booing. You never saw that? Oh, I, think it was, I never that was, saw that. That was viral. Anyway, I could just imagine him being in line because he looks kind of like the dude from Terminator Two, the T One Thousand. I could just imagine yeah. him chasing down that car and just fucking killing everybody in it. That's the type of dude that he was. He was absolutely. Sorry, that was a lot of setup for very little payoff. I liked it. I'm sorry, I, listener. I, I didn't know where it was going, but I, I enjoyed the journey. In 1989, McVeigh was assigned to the gunner position in a Bradley Fighting Vehicles crew. In 1990, 
He was promoted to sergeant, and he was asked to join the Green Berets, just like our buddy Randy Weaver. Mm-hmm. But his plans were interrupted by the star of episode one of Hunter Proof History, Greg's hero, Saddam Hussein. I'm a star! <laughs> now kill all the dissenters! <laughs> <laughs> Tim and his crew were sent to the Middle East to fight in the First Gulf War. His Bradley was officially named Charlie Eleven, but McVeigh and the crew renamed it Bad Company after the song Bad Company from the band Bad Company off their debut album entitled Bad Company. And yeah, McVeigh blasted the song on repeat inside the Bradley fighting vehicle. Just fucking terrible. I used to do this uh, to fuck with people at a local bar. It has one of those internet-enabled jukeboxes that you can buy credits and play songs. Mm-hmm. So it's internet-enabled, so you can do it from your home, even if you're not at the bar. So I used to blast this exact song like over and over and over. <laughs> Bad company. Ser- seriously. <laughs> yeah. And, and like I said, sometimes I'd be at home. But I started doing it like at the bar over and over, just to fuck with friends you know, and all that. But if I was at home and... Friends were up there, and I knew it. I'd start doing it. <laughs> I'd play it like just to fuck with them, and I'd see it over and over. And it was one. It was like one of the one credit songs, so it was pretty cheap. But uh, I know shit. Probably spent like a hundred dollars that summer just trolling people <laughs> with bad, bad company. Com- <laughs> yeah. Like the bartenders took forever to figure it out. They'd be all pissed whenever it came on. It was awesome. Oh man, uh, this it's just such a t- that reminded me of that because it was that specific no, that's- song. That's great because it's such a terrible fucking song. And at the time in our story, that song's like 11 years old, 12 years old. Like, it's not even a new yeah. badass song. You know, it's not, you know, November Rain or Welcome to the Jungle or something like that. It's just fucking, you know, back up and knee till the day I die. <laughs> just on fucking repeat. Like, Tim sitting uh-huh. over there, like, hey guys, guess what's next? Up on the tape, I'm like please, God, no, Tim. And you're bad company. <laughs> <Just like, laughs> Jesus Christ, Tim. I I would like. I did to it think... even more with uh with uh boys are back in town. <laughs> like I, I would I like... definitely did it more with boys are back in town to fuck with people. But think about it, like okay, let's say I joined, you know, in two thousand three to go fight in Iraq or Afghanistan, and I'm like, okay, guys. Here we go. Achy, breaky heart. Here we go. Here we go. Here it is again. <laughs> we're, we're not Delta Two. We're achy, breaky heart. Here we go. Beep. Don't tell my heart. <laughs> oh, you know, it's actually pretty smart. It's like getting your guys psyched up. Like, you think you want to play something badass. Like, yeah, let's go. Let's fucking kill something. But no, you just play the same song. On loop, just you know, it's not unusual by Tom Jones, just over and over and over again. It's like I'm gonna fucking kill something. I'm gonna fucking blow something up. Yeah, but that's oh how you God. get a grenade through. That's how you get a grenade thrown in your fucking tent. That's how those stories happen. <laughs> it was in the Gulf War that McVeigh said he lost his respect for the sanctity of human life. On day two of the four-day engagement, uh, seriously, guys, it was a four-day war. Go listen to our first few episodes on the Patreon. McVeigh fired off a 25-millimeter cannon round and blew an Iraqi soldier in half, which I don't... How does he know? How did... Like, this is obviously a long-distance shot. How does he know that? 
Last thing, when I was in Iraq, I was not part of a Bradley unit, and they were actually still in commission then. They've since been decommissioned. But I had the opportunity to get in one and to see the optics and everything that they they look at. I can't imagine. I like I. What was this dude fifty feet away from him? These I don't things know. can shoot like a fucking mile away, and somehow he, you know, saw this Iraqi soldier get blown in half, and you know, talked about remembering the blood splatter, the bl- the mist that came yeah, from him, the red mist, getting yeah. blown apart. I just feel like this is just more of his fucking storytelling. Probably, yeah. Unless they like pulled up, we're all slow, and the guys just stand there with a pistol like this. And they just slowly raise the cannon down. <laughs> he's like, the guy's sitting there staring at him. He's like, oh, shit. Any last he words? <laughs> he pulls the trigger like Tom Hanks and Saving Private Ryan. He's like, I don't care. Fuck you. Boom. And it just bounces off. And then just, <laughs> boom. Right in his fucking face. We win well, the no, war. Well, no, they actually, they're in the tank. Mm-hmm. And they pull up to this guy. He's got the little pea shirt. He's got a little Makarov pistol. And uh, they're like, hey, man. Surrender, please. Just surrender. We'll disarm you, and you can go home to your family. But he can't hear anything because the external speakers are just blaring fucking, Bad, Bad company <laughs> till the day I die. And so the guy doesn't surrender because he never heard the message, and so they just blow him in half point blank. He's just like, I've heard this song a thousand fucking times. Just fucking kill me already. <laughs> <laughs> the Iraqi sounds like Hugh Grant. Yes, exactly right. He also got caught with a prostitute in his car. <laughs> Just ready to die. <laughs> <laughs> On day three, as Bad Company advanced toward an airfield, they came across the remains of a huge tank battle and the burning bodies of dead Iraqi soldiers. McVeigh said the bodies didn't bother him, saying, quote, They're just like anything else that is dead. They stink and rot. That's... My What's your McVeigh face slash Napoleon Dynamite. I can't really do a Napoleon Dynamite, so okay. it's just that's what Tim McVeigh sounds like. That's what you're getting, listener. <laughs> yeah, that's what you're paying for. Exactly. This shit's free. Take what you get. <laughs> that's what I tell my wife after six seconds. <laughs> <laughs> On the fourth day of Operation Desert Storm, the war was basically over. Bad Company was ordered to bury some dead Iraqi soldiers, then ordered to dig them back up so that the bodies could be counted, and then ordered to bury them again. Just, you know, red tape. We're getting to the bureaucracy of war. Bureaucracy. We're getting to the bureaucracy of war here. It's like, oh, how much damage do we do? We need to get some spreadsheets going. That's exactly (laughs) how they sounded. The same day McVeigh and his unit met and shook hands with Stormin. Norman Schwarzkopf. And there was just a guy walking behind him with a boombox. You know what that boombox was playing, Greg? You know what I was playing. Company, <laughs> the day I die. Nope. That is nope. General Norman Schwarzkopf, by the way. Yep. And the boombox was playing. And I'm proud to no. be an American. Well, at least I know I'm free. Lee Greenwood. <laughs> yeah, that's what my Bradley would be called. We're not Delta Two. We're Lee Greenwood, and here we come, just blasting. God bless the USA as we decimate your fucking 
undermanned and underequipped Iraqi forces. So proud of myself. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> now thank me for my service. <laughs> yeah. Give me your first class seat. You go back to fucking business class, you stupid bitch. <laughs> you just stand at the, the coffee store in line. You get to the front, you order. They're like, uh, yes, sir, it'll be a 323. You just turn around and put your hands up. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to get this. Fucking hero. <laughs> Nobody's going to get this. Right? And it turns out it was like some fucking guy who worked at the quartermaster. He just handed out fucking K rations all day. Here you go. There you go. <laughs> I'm a hero. Well, although he said dead bodies and killing didn't bother him, McVeigh would later tell his defense attorneys, Once I killed people in a wreck, I was different from most other people because I had killed someone. Just a stunning fucking statistical analysis, McVeigh. Thank you. Once you cross that line, you can't go back. There ain't no going back. Yeah. Tell that to all the soldiers who didn't come back and commit mass murder, you fucking dickhead, broom-headed motherfucker. Yeah, good point. Well, at the same time, he felt like his honorable image of the army had been sullied. McVeigh and his unit had also seen the noted Highway of Death, in which U.S. aerial attacks had decimated retreating Iraqi soldiers. And again, episode one, find it on the Patreon. McVeigh felt like his government had made him a pawn. I always fancied myself more like a, a rook. I thought you more you of know? a bishop the way you treat young boys. Yeah, well, you're a queen, so. <laughs> I am <laughs> Just because I do this This podcast over Zoom In full makeup With my big eyelashes You want to call me a queen Okay, fine <laughs> It's more the rosy cheeks That you've given yourself <laughs> Just too much on the rouge, Chris All the contouring I do That make me look feminine <laughs> <laughs> And what's up with the cat eyes trend? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sick of the cat eyes. Stop doing that, ladies. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm I'm just trying to be hip. But there is no amount of concealer that can hide this Rick Ocasek from Cars Adam's Apple I have going on here. I don't know what that is. You never Rick Ocasek from Cars? You should look him up. Obviously, that's going to be a hit with all of our listeners, this 1984 reference. <laughs> <laughs> I was born that year, Christopher. Well, Tim returned to the United States and began his special forces training, but withdrew, or as they call it, washed out, after only two days. He was returned to regular duty and once again began preaching to everyone about the Tartar Diaries and became even more openly racist. Oh boy. Yep. Two black soldiers complained that McVeigh always gave them the most degrading jobs. Later, McVeigh ran into the same soldiers and saw that they were wearing shirts that said, Black Power. McVeigh went home, opened his favorite separatist magazine, and found an ad for a free shirt that said, All Power. I'm sorry, no, White Power. All he had to do to get this free shirt was send a check for $20 to join up with the Ku Klux Klan. Good old free $20 t-shirt. <laughs> well, the membership is $20. The shirt is free. Come on, man. It seems a little ridiculous you got to pay money to admit you're racist. Okay, we need these funds. 
we're having a cookout next week, and uh, you know, beer yeah, ain't what free. What the fuck are they using money on? <laughs> I don't know. Dry cleaning for their fucking ash stained robes. Like, uh, can I get that pressed? Uh, also, know. light starch. The guys just stare. <laughs> <Yeah. at. laughs> well, when Tim wore the shirt on base, he was reprimanded, and he said, "You know what? That's the fucking last straw." He decided it was time to leave the army. He was given an honorable discharge. Following his time in the Army, McVeigh returned to upstate New York where he began to exhibit signs of PTSD, such as headaches, stomach issues, and an inability to sleep. Old friends and neighbors observed a change in his personality and noted that he spent most of his time in isolation. Much like we should all be doing right now. Yeah. Stop making the cases go up, people. Take an example from Tim McVeigh. Be more like Tim. That's what I always say. No. No, just I just the I one thing. Set myself up for that. One. <laughs> just, it's just the one thing. Just do the one. Well, and all the men also be incels like Tim McVeigh. Leave more ladies for me. <laughs> Whatever, man. He was he was banging all the milfs at the jazz bar with their. He was slaying it. Bag of sand titties. <laughs> <laughs> well, McVeigh searched for work and found what he thought was just the perfect job for him: a turnpike toll booth operator. What a dream fucking job. No offense, of course, to any turnpike toll booth operators that listen to this show. It's all automated now. Your jobs have been replaced by robots. You're just sitting home getting angry. <laughs> you stupid fucks. All offense to you. <laughs> <laughs> if you're one of the few still doing it, you're a fucking idiot. Get out while you can. <laughs> <laughs> but still, sorry. Sorry your job is meaningless and can be replaced by a fucking license plate reader. I'm sorry. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> That's the robot that took your job. <laughs> His application process involved a test, and according to McVeigh, he had scored an incredible number, and his score was Trump the second voice. highest in the hold entire on, state. Hold on. Back it up. Incredible number. Can you do a uh, Trump voice? Because it's I'll try. the highest number, the most unbelievable numbers. Okay. His application process involved a test, and according to McVeigh, he scored an incredible number. I can't, I can't. <laughs> That's just straight up fucking New York construction worker. I know. Incredible uh, hey, hey, baby. You got some fries with that shit? You been through that <laughs> new uh, robotic toll booth, eh? <laughs> anyway, oh, and his score it. was the second highest in the entire state. He even got five bonus points for being prior military. But wouldn't you know it, he didn't get the job. He blamed the minorities. And this is how people like this are. They cannot yeah. handle failure. They look for anything else to blame but themselves. Like We all try and fail at shit, right? I mean, hell, look at this podcast. But <laughs> it's getting back up and dusting yourself off that shows maturity. This insolent fuck was basically a giant toddler. Anything wrong that happened to him was never his fault. It was always somebody else's because he could not right. handle failure. Yeah. Okay. First of all, how the fuck do you know your second overall in scoring? You don't know that. You're just making shit up. And like, he's even like being humble. He's like, I wasn't the best, but I was number two and they didn't hire me. What the fuck? Like, okay. Yeah. You, no. you got to set your claims believable, you know? Also, what kind of fucking tests are they giving toll booth operators? Like they're in their fucking taking Mensa tests where they have to arrange shit like an IQ test. No, no, it's basic fucking math. Someone pulls up, 
gives you a dollar. The toll is 75 cents. How much change do you give back? I'm like, oh, fuck. Tim McVeigh's just pounding on the calculator. <laughs> 73 cents. I got it. I got it. I fucking <laughs> nailed it. And again, no offense to our robot overlord toll booth operator. Toll booth operators. I miss the human toll booth operator because you pull up, you have a nice little conversation. Hey, how's your day going? Oh, it's good. How many quarters? Oh, four quarters. Oh, yeah. Okay. What are you cooking for dinner? Then the arm goes up for like an answer and you speed off. Or <laughs> you wait for the answer and someone's just like mashing on the fucking horn. Get the fuck out of the way. I got places to be. And you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going fishing today. Hope they're biting, eh? And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> Well, Tim applied to the U.S. Marshal Service and, once again, didn't get the job. This time, he claimed he was the 57th in the nation when it came to the test, and he had worked in an armored car, which made him quasi-law enforcement, according to him. So, fuck, it's the security guard that shows up. Oh, yeah. Like, hey, guys, here's, sure. here's what we got. Here's what we got. Like, okay, calm down, motherfucker. You're working a mall. I did mall security for six months. I'm basically SEAL Team 6. <laughs> right? No big deal. <sighs> Someone walks away with a full-size Toblerone, and the guy just dives in front of someone. Get down, Mr. President! <laughs> <laughs> a four-year-old. Well, you know, yeah. I'm sure his mom tells him that he can be president one day. Anybody can, right? <laughs> well, when he didn't get that gig, he went back to work for the Armored Car Service. He would later brag that when he applied for this job, he was able to put 48 out of 50 pistol rounds onto a paper target from 25 feet. Like, that's not really a big deal at all. No. no. And what the I, fuck happened to the other two shots? When he tells this story, he says feet. Maybe he means yards. From 25 yards, that's pretty impressive. 48 out of 50. Okay, I'll give you that. Yes. But 25 feet, that's your average pistol engagement in the United States, which is within eight yards. Okay? Um, so, you should be able to put all 50 on paper and maybe... The vast majority within the very center mass of the target, the very center of the target. You should be nailing that from fucking eight yards. It's nothing. Yeah. But he's like, yeah, I fucking did it. Look at me. I got bow staff skills. I got computer hacking skills. I got gun skills. I'm the entire package, baby. Let me go to the MILF <laughs> jazz bar and get some of those sandbag titties. <laughs> McVeigh's job took him to the local zoo, where he was so well-liked by one of the big cats that she would, quote, throw her cubs off her and come running to the bars of the cage, end quote, just so McVeigh could pet her. It was also around this time that McVeigh says he slept with even more older married women. Stay the fuck off my fucking jazz bars, Timmy! <laughs> He's like, I got this pussy at the zoo, I'm gonna get this pussy at the MILF jazz bar, here we go, ladies. It's all bullshit. Like, that's just, that's Tim McVeigh. He's going to brag about stupid shit like, yeah, I'd go to the zoo and this, this fucking mama tiger would abandon her cubs just to come see me, Tim McVeigh. Oh, I, I could see that wet tiger pussy. Like, I just, I know it. <laughs> she, she wanted it. You know, I never gave it to her. It was against the rules, but she wanted it. She wanted it. She, she had these it. big hanging udders for all of her tigers. They all look like bags of sand. I want to get in there. Just get in there. <laughs> Oh, she she was so fucking thirsty for me. I know, because she'd get up and go to her <laughs> water bowl and start drinking. Thirsty bitch. I'm just saying. I'm Tim McVeigh. No big deal. It's also a way of him showing he's badass. Where most people would be scared to reach in and pet this tiger. He's like, oh, look at me. 
the tiger loves me because I'm petting it so much. It's like, okay, you fucking piece of shit. All right, you fake-ass Joe Exotic. <laughs> I feel like Joe Exotic was a fake-ass Joe Exotic, too. So. Right, well, yeah. You know, whatever. Double, double fake, yeah. <laughs> McVeigh moved into a small apartment. He was so poor that he couldn't afford a phone or the $20 membership fee to the NRA. He just sat around bitching about the government and saying racist shit to anyone who would visit him. Despite his limited funds, he fell into gambling and made the rookie mistake of betting with your heart by placing bets on the Buffalo Bills. He bet $1,000 on the Bills to win Super Bowl twenty-seven, which they promptly lost 51-17 to to the Dallas Cowboys, a.k.a. America's team. Give me something, Wolf Dick. It does. It is fitting, though, that he did bet against America's team because he hated the fucking government so much. It's like, oh, fuck America. Bills are going to win this. Oh, shit. Just immediately. Oh, we'll get him next year, guys. Well, the Bills lost, and he lost some Bills. Hey! (laughs) Cowboys also beat the Bills in the Super Bowl the next year. Fuck you, Tim. Well, he used a cash advance from his credit card to pay that debt, and then never paid on the card. Oh, and even though he was broke as fuck, he still scrounged up $20 to renew his KKK membership. Hmm... Around that time, the FBI was busy fucking shit up at Ruby Ridge, which we covered two episodes ago. McVeigh got all of his news about the incident from right-wing sources because he felt like he couldn't trust the mainstream media. Sounds a little familiar. It does. Why should I wear a mask? That's just what the mainstream media, the MSM, wants me to do. Later, he would say that Ruby Ridge was a key event in his decision to bomb the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City. In late 1992, McVeigh reconnected with his army buddy, Terry Nichols, and spent time with Nichols and his mail-order Filipino bride, Marif, in Michigan. McVeigh then hopped in his silver Geo Spectrum, which he had nicknamed the Road Warrior, and headed for Florida, a.k.a. America's Wang. You know, ever seen it on a map? Come on, guys. <laughs> I hate this guy. I hate him. He nicknames his fucking Bradley Bad Company and his cars are road. It's a fucking Geo Spectrum. Look it up on the internet. It is the wienerest car? It was just the fucking tiny Maybe little bitch ass. He did it gun. ironically. He, <laughs> he might no. have done it like no jokingly. There is z- Come on. zero out. There's zero ounce of irony to Timothy McVeigh. You're probably right. He's like, I got a fucking M249 saw sitting in the passenger seat of the Road Warrior. Nobody's going to fuck with this baby. (laughs) Tim was in Florida working in construction when he turned on the television and saw the ATF raiding a small religious compound in Waco, Texas, which we spoke about last episode. It's all coming together, people. That's right. McVeigh's response was, well, okay, they're killing feds. They must be doing something right. He then raised up a hand for a high five, but everyone left him hanging. (laughs) As the situation intensified, McVeigh loaded up the Road Warrior with anti-government bumper stickers and headed for Waco where he sold them to his fellow onlookers. Have you ever felt strongly enough about something to put a bumper sticker on your car? Mm, No. I would never put a bumper sticker on my... Not only, you know, I'm not that kind of guy who's like, oh yeah, um, your kids are in honor classes my kid can beat up your kid like those fucking stupid bullshit bumper stickers i've never felt strongly enough about something to fucking defile my own vehicle and lower its fucking resale value because i you know want to get across a point 
My only thing was that I put truck nuts on my Mazda Miata. <laughs> but on both sides. On the front, too. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, he decided to head to Arizona, where he met up with his other old army buddy, Michael Fortier, and his wife, Lori. Both men hated the government, and they agreed that the standoff in Waco was the beginning of a new world order in which a secret elitist cabal within the United Nations would rise up and take control of the world. These fucking idiots. So George H.W. Bush referred to a new world order when he was talking about the 38 fucking countries that aligned to fight Iraq in the Gulf War. That's what he was saying. He was saying, hey, this is new world order, man. We're, we're kicking ass. And they're like, oh, no, that's code. The United Nations is going to take over the world. Which, if they'd study history at fucking all, they realize how inept and fucking tits useless the United Nations really is. Oh, yeah. And the League of Nations before it. Yeah. And this is really the period when conspiracy theorists started to just fucking go ape shit. It's Absolutely. because of the rise of the internet and just the things that were happening in the world. Like, they were picking up these things. You had all these these little um, small publications that mm -hmm. were going out to massive amounts of people. This is really when the whole conspiracy theorist thing really caught fire, was in right. the 90s, in the U.S., and it has just fucking run amok since. And it's only 30 years after the JFK assassination, which I feel like launched most of these conspiracy theorists, like the government. You have the JFK assassination, and then you have Vietnam, you have Nixon. Everybody feels like the government No, it is definitely got people thinking, but this is when I yeah. feel like it, this was the peak of conspiracy theorists. Because you could right. put out publications, and people are like, you know, this is before the whole, oh, it's on the internet, it must be true. This is when, fuck, you get a magazine, and it's telling you this shit, and these people are just running with it, and it spreads like wildfire. That's why everything still is referred to as New World Order bullshit. Yeah, I feel like it's only gotten worse, though, with the internet and the expansion of information. You can find someone who agrees with you, a whole group of people that agree with you. You can find someone to share on Facebook, and it's just fucking nonsense. Good old echo chamber. We have made a disease political. We have made a sickness political and said That's it's so all a fucking, to me. a fucking lie, and we want you to put on a mask because it's the government controlling you. It's all fucking horse shit that people are like, oh, I won't be controlled. Oh, by the way, here's my here's my taxes for this year. Here's my fucking water bill. You know, <laughs> just, I don't. Yeah, I I feel like the internet has ruined everything. Let's shut down the internet, people. Wait, we're a fucking podcast on the internet. Just shut down part of the internet, people. <laughs> <laughs> that cake store. And those owners are well within their rights to refuse service to gay people. That's their constitutional right. Mm -hmm. Wait, this other store is trying to make me wear a mask? Unfucking believable! Unacceptable! Tyranny! I will not! Tyranny! I will not! <laughs> Sick super tyrannous! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to the story. McVeigh stayed with the Fortiers for a while before heading for Area 51. And Chris, for our listeners that don't know about Area 51, maybe a very brief synopsis. Uh, Area 51 is the very top secret base in Nevada 
that supposedly, allegedly, houses evidence of alien life forms. But no one really knows, do they? Or do they? Well, once there, he was chased by men in a white jeep and Black Hawk helicopters, but they knew better than to mess with a 6'4", 155-pound badass like Tim McVeigh. It's another one of those just bullshit, made-up Tim McVeigh stories. Like, oh, yeah, I was... 100%. I, I squat in the bushes and I raised up my assault rifle and they ran away because they were scared of me. <laughs> <laughs> here comes Gumby with a buzz cut. Let's get the fuck out of here, fellas. <laughs> Pokey's got to be close behind. (laughs) He then set off for the biker rally in Sturgis, North Dakota, where he hoped to bang a hot biker chick who came up empty. You see, to make all these grandiose claims, Mm -hmm. you gotta, you know, sprinkle in the little, oh, you know, I tried, and it didn't work out, but, you know, no big deal. They all said my dick was too big. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) They all had super chlamydia. Is it going to take over my kidneys? I said, (laughs) nah, ain't happening this time. Every time I'd pull down some Harley Davidson panties, that chlamydia would just pop out of that giant and flex on me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, no thanks, Super Chlamydia. You wanna go, bro? You wanna go? Ah! That's Super Chlamydia. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> so Skinny Timmy made his way back west, selling guns and copies of the Turner Diaries at gun shows, and wound up back at the Fortiers in Arizona, where he fell into the world of drugs. McVeigh said he first tried weed, but it didn't do anything for him, so naturally he decided to go ahead and try the good old meth. Makes sense. Tim said, meth seemed to energize my brain. (laughs) Lori Fortier loved meth too and would spend all night listening to police scanners, but Mike liked to stick to pot. McVeigh disapproved of Mike smoking weed because it made Mike dull and inattentive. After using meth a few times, Mike and Lori invited Tim to have a threesome on the kitchen floor. But Tim's jaw locked up, and he was hopelessly impotent. I got some things here. First, kitchen floor has got to be the worst fucking place to have a threesome. Just Oh, and you know it was so it un- sounds like it was in a trailer, so it's like fucking linoleum at best. Oh, it's awful. And you got that tiny space between the kitchen and the, the sink and the, the tiny island in the mm-hmm. middle of the kitchen. Just fuck. Just awful. But also, he's like, oh, weed? Are you kidding me? Oh, it, it really fucks up your state of mind, man. Why don't you go ahead and smoke some meth? And like, oh. God, Meanwhile, fuck. he's he's on like his 80th pull up. I can't believe <laughs> yeah. you did weed, dude. I can't believe you fucking did. <laughs> I started digging a hole to China, but I was like, oh no, China's our enemy. Then I stopped digging a hole, but I was like, I'm gonna take apart the radio because that's where the government gets you. They get you through the radio, WVIP, and it's a Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey's like, that's the rest of the story. But what's the rest of the story, Paul Harvey? I don't know. Fuck, I don't know. Let's just find it out. Let's take over the government. Let's throw it away, man. Ah! Let's have some sex on the kitchen floor. And then here you are, Mike, just relaxed, smoking your weed. It's destroying your mind, man. It's fucking destroying Just watching Beavis butthead and laughing your ass off? Come on, man. Get with it. Get with the times. <laughs> You're killing your brain, Mike. You're killing your fucking brain. <laughs> Brain's electrons, man. It's exploding. Exploding at electrons, ions, and, and all sorts of stuff, man. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Just do some meth. Just smoke some meth, man. Ah! <laughs> well, dejected, he took his lamp weenie and the road warrior back to Michigan to hang out with Terry Nichols and his wife once again. He was there working on a car on April 19, 1993, when he watched the Branch Davidian compound burn to the ground. 
For McVeigh, this was a declaration of war. In 1993 and 1994, McVeigh would have more road trip adventures. He got word that the United Nations was building up forces in Gulfport, Mississippi. He broke into the yard where the equipment was supposedly being held only to find a bunch of broken down Soviet Union trucks that the government had bought for scrap following the fall of the USSR. Fucking idiot. Similarly, he went to the Everglades in Florida, where he heard about rumors of a UN invasion, but once again, there was nothing there. Okay, the Soviet, the United Nations is going to invade the country. Where are they going to start? Gulfport, Mississippi. What the fuck, you fucking idiot? (laughs) (laughs) They go down down into... They they put themselves in a pincer movement by going into the Gulf of Mexico to invade the U.S. The very fucking middle, a completely irrelevant port, like not New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me, man. Let's take part of these people. Let's take, let's just take it apart, man. Let's kill the government. <laughs> a strange event took place where he returned to the Nichols home in Michigan. Jason, the three-year-old son of Marif Nichols, was found dead inside a plastic bag. It was no secret that neither Terry Nichols or Timothy McVeigh cared for the boy, and in his interview, McVeigh never flat-out denied hurting the boy, but there was no evidence to support anything other than a tragic accident. Well, the Nichols took advantage of this new kid-free lifestyle and moved to Las Vegas, Kansas. Yeah! Oh. (laughs) McVeigh went back to the 48's meth dungeon in Arizona. It was shortly after this event that Congress moved to ban assault weapons, or semi-automatic high-capacity rifles, such as AR-15s. For McVeigh, this was the last straw. He and Michael Fortier began to experiment with black power. Oh no! (laughs) McVeigh would never do that! I meant black powder. (laughs) They were building bombs. (laughs) Uh. Let's take a break so I can laugh for the next ten fucking minutes. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) See you in a few. Uh, Seconds. All right, love you. All right, we are back from break uh gregory i i know we like to like kind of bullshit when we come back from break but we need to wrap this up because i have something to do after this i am very excited it is july 3rd we're recording this and hamilton is on disney plus oh really yeah and i'm gonna get i'm already drunk i'm gonna get drunker as we do this and i'm gonna go listen to that like Sober, I'm like, ah, musicals. Drunk, I'm like singing every fucking word. I know every word to Greatest Showman and every word to Moana when I'm drunk. When I'm sober, I'm like, oh, no, I'm cool. I'm cool. Okay. I'm, yeah, <laughs> that's, that stuff's lame. <laughs> but no, you get me drunk, and I'm all about it. So, man, I am looking forward to that Hamilton. He is not playing a bit right now, people. I remember is- uh, one time at the end of the year for our a fantasy football league that Chris and I are in, we have a bonfire. One time, you know, these guys wanted me to bring my speaker microphone set up so we could do some karaoke. And I don't have kids. Chris does. A lot of these other guys do. And I figured we'll do some, I don't know, 90s grunge, maybe some Nirvana or something. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? 
Paulo Abdul. I don't know. First up. But uh, <laughs> we get like two songs in and these dudes are singing Moana. And shit, <laughs> so he's not lying to you. He Just acts- a bunch of dudes in the in the in a Texas January around a gigantic bonfire, drunk as shit, and on a loudspeaker, Moana, frozen, <laughs> shit like that. I'm not kidding. He acts like he's too cool for this shit, but uh, last year, not this year, but last year, 2019, I had a birthday party. We did a karaoke thing. And the first thing out of his mouth was like, they got any lame is? Can I get any of that? And then we look it up, and it's like, yeah. oh, there's Dude. there's this one oh, song for Les Mis. It's like, no, that's not what I was thinking of. No, I wanted something else, you know? <laughs> Dude, I'm a grown man. I'm not singing Castle on a Cloud. Get the fuck out of town. <laughs> <laughs> sung by a nine-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> it better be sung by Hugh Jackman, or I am fucking out. This is it for me. <laughs> oh, God damn it. The original cast of 1988, you piece of shit. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get back to the murder and shit. How about that? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> All right, Chris. So, in one sentence, what is the best recap you can give us from the first half? And go. Okay. Timothy McVeigh was a racist piece of shit who went to the army fell out of love with the American government and decided to attack the very institutions for which he had served. Good? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. All right. Well, in the Turner Diaries, the racist terrorists who idiot right-wingers view as heroes use what is known as an ANFO to build their bombs. ANFO stands for Ammonium Nitrate Fuel Oil and involves the mixing of fertilizer with diesel oil to make an explosive compound. The problem with ANFO is that it is a low-yield explosive and wouldn't be able to take out a large federal building as described in the Turn Diaries. But again, that book was written by a racist idiot. Mm-hmm. Well, Timothy McVeigh got back in touch with Terry Nichols, and the two men began to buy bags upon bags of fertilizer. Between the months of August and September of 1994, they bought a total of 60 bags, which is about 3,000 pounds. McVeigh bought the fertilizer under the name Mike Havens. Later, a receipt under that name would be found with McVeigh's fingerprints on it. Just unfortunate coincidence that he knew Mike Havens. That's weird. Yeah, strange, man. Now, McVeigh knew that an ANFO bomb wouldn't actually have the impact he desired, and so he began to look for other chemicals to mix with the fertilizer to be used as what is known as a quote-unquote sensitizing agent. In October of 1994, he and Nichols headed to a racetrack in Ennis, Texas, just outside of Dallas. There, they bought three 55-gallon drums of nitromethane. McVeigh told the man who was selling it that he and his buddies used the nitromethane to race Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Well, that guy thought this was odd because street bikes could only run on 3.5% nitromethane and 165 gallons of it seemed like overkill, but hey, a buck is a buck, right? Well, on the drive to Ennis to pick up the fuel, McVeigh and Nichols made a detour through Oklahoma City. It was then that they first laid eyes on the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. 
They considered several targets, but none as seriously as the Murr building. Inside were the offices of the ATF, specifically the offices that housed the agents who had been responsible for the siege in Waco. For them, it was the perfect target. Later, in October, McVeigh and Nichols returned to Kansas where they raided the explosive shed at a quarry. They stole 350 pounds of gel explosive charges in long, sausage-like shapes. <laughs> mm. Mm. Dick explosive. That's Baby. What I, that's what I call myself when I text latest. <laughs> <laughs> they also stole 600 blasting caps and detonation cord, or as we in the biz like to call it, debt cord. We in the business of podcasting. Comes up a lot. You just... Shorten a couple words. Yeah. Boom. One word. Yeah. Compound word. You're welcome. Yeah. We don't call it podcasting casting. We call it podcasting. We we shorten it. Just like we do dead court. Saves time. <laughs> Unlike this explanation, which is taking a long fucking time. But no, think about it for a second. Saves time. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> yeah. We shorten it to save you guys time. <laughs> don't thank us all at once, please. <laughs> well, that debt cord was to be wrapped around the gel explosive, and that would serve as the core of the Oklahoma City bomb. See? That sentence right there. We said debt cord instead of detonation cord. Mm-hmm. And look how much time it's it so saved much you time. as the listener. You were like, what is, de- what is debt cord again? Oh, detonation cord. Thank you. Thank you, Hunter Proof History, for saving me That's so right. much time. And you know what, listener? You're fucking welcome. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> Your boss is just standing over your shoulder and he's like, this guy hasn't done work in an hour and a half. You're like, oh, I just saved six seconds because detonation cord turned into debt cord. I got it. Could you imagine somebody's boss like coming up to him like in Fight Club when he's like, found all these on the printer. What the, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like somebody's boss comes up to him. They're listening to our show. It's all this history. All this history. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, no, no, I, I'm educating myself. Here, let me show you. And then they've heard these past two minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, oh, yeah, yeah. Detonation uh, <laughs> saving you so much time, so much time. Instant. Like, all right, uh, I think you need to go see HR. <laughs> and and I'll, you should probably take your things with you. You need to go to HR and spread this around so everyone gets these time-saving tips. Like detonation cord to dead cord. These guys are fantastic. <laughs> Here we go. We're gonna we're gonna increase productivity like 140 percent just right there. Because if we didn't give you this explanation, you'd be five minutes ahead in this podcast. Right now. <laughs> but if you want to make an omelet, you got to crack a few eggs. Yep, Tony. So, Tony Stark. You know, you're right. It'll uh, it, it'll add up over the next <laughs> 500 episodes. You'll probably make up for this time based on the contractions. That's all I'm saying. Right now, everyone's hitting skip 30 seconds. Skip 30 seconds. They're still talking about fucking debt cord. Skip 30 seconds. What is happening with this podcast? Ooh, we gotta we gotta do like the podcast I listen to when they advertise. Like, let's just start. Like we're in the middle of something. Mm-hmm. Like, oh fuck, I went way too far, and they turn back, and oh, you're right back in the advertising <laughs> again. <laughs> Have you heard of kombucha, Greg? GT's kombucha, <laughs> <laughs> Casper mattresses, maybe. Hmm. Anyway, where the fuck was I? I don't even remember. dead cord. Okay, there we go. 
Well, now Tim McVeigh had his target and the explosives. But one thing he and Terry Nichols didn't have was any money. So, they decided to rob a known white supremacist and leader of the KKK, an Arkansas man named Roger Moore. 007. Yeah, he started in several James Bond movies. McVeigh went back to New York to establish an alibi, while Nichols went to Arkansas. On November 5th, 1994, Nichols burst into Moore's home and took all of the guns and valuables. The two men, McVeigh and Nichols, returned to Kansas where they loaded up their cars with the explosive materials and headed for the Fortier house in Arizona. It was then that McVeigh revealed his plan to Fortier. And just like a fucking child, he used canned vegetables and made a diagram of how the explosive barrels would be arranged inside a large cargo truck. Like, oh, this barrel here, these sweet peas, yep, that's a bomb. Oh, these French style green beans, oh, you bet your sweet ass, that's a bomb. This kernel corn, cream style, no, that's for me. Here we go, okay, no, here we go, black eyed peas, bomb. Just fucking stupid on the kitchen. <laughs> and these Vienna sausage? Oh, are they, are they a bomb too? No. This is just what I eat. <laughs> and then I drink the fucking gelatin. Because oh, wouldn't God. you think if anybody did that, it'd oh, be Timothy Tim McVeigh. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Like They would just enjoy himself some Vienna sausage and then just glurp oh, down the God. fucking... Oh. Oh, the, Gelatin filler. Uh. McVeigh also told 48 why he had picked the Murrah building and said he was hoping for the maximum of casualties. 48 later said, quote, Well, he explained to me that he considered all these people to be as if they were the stormtroopers in the movie Star Wars. They may be individually innocent. But because they are some part of the evil empire, they are guilty by association. Which I, he 100% stole this from Clerks 1. They're talking about, like, some subcontractor on the Death Star. It's like, well, you're working for the fucking evil empire. You deserve to die. Like, they're having this moral quandary. Was that all by then? Yeah, 93. Clerks 1, yeah. Well, either way, those kids on the second floor daycare... How dare they be born? Fucking assholes. Association. They're just cleaning their fucking M16s, thinking about how they want to take over the country, you know, for the United Nations. Fucking piece of shit kids. New World Order kids. <laughs> McVeigh realized that the blasting caps that he had stolen were useless because they were too unstable. He designed his bombs to go off using a long length of cannon fuse instead. Laurie and Michael Fortier agreed to sell off the blasting caps and the guns that Nichols had stolen in Arkansas, but they wanted no further part of McVeigh's bombing plot. McVeigh took half of the blasting caps for himself to sell, and was lucky they didn't go off and kill him when someone rear-ended his car. Kind of wish they would have, huh? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. But, sadly, Greg, just like Rocket Horse... The Road Warriors' time had come to an end. On April 13th, 1995, Tim bought an old yellow Mercury Marquee for $250, and he's still paying it off to this day. (laughs) 
on April 14th. Uh, kind of doubt that. <laughs> yeah, well, his relative, no, you're right. Yeah, no, he's probably not banned off anymore. Don't spoil the show. <laughs> on April 14th, McVeigh called to reserve a rider truck at Elliot's Body Shop in Junction City, Kansas. He used the name Bob Kling. Like Klingon, because he was a big fan of Star Wars. He then met up with Terry Nichols and put a new battery in the Mercury. Then, McVeigh headed over to the Dreamland Motel in Junction City and checked in. This time, the name he put on the form was his own fucking idiot. Well, two days later, McVeigh and Nichols drove to Oklahoma City in separate cars. McVeigh backed the Mercury into an alleyway and removed the plates from the vehicle. He tossed the plates inside the car and then put a note on the dashboard that said, quote, Not abandoned. Please do not tow. Will be removed by April 23rd. Needs battery and cable. Which, if they had stumbled across it, they would have towed it. But it was in a fucking alleyway backed up against a wall. No one was going to fucking find this car, but they would have towed that shit and he'd been fucked. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, nobody found it. On Monday the 17th, McVeigh picked up his rider truck rental. Behind him in line at Elliot's body shop was a man named Todd Bunting, who would later be misidentified as an accomplice of McVeigh, but there was no connection there. But he is part of the reason that people were looking for an Arab man when the sketches first came out of John Doe number one and John Doe number two. Right. He was an Arab, but, you know, this is America, and a bombing happened, so you know how people be. Yeah. But there was no fucking overarching conspiracy. They found this dude quick. He actually turned himself in. Yeah. He's like, hey, that looks like me, and I was there. So, and it was quickly like, uh, okay, you're good. Offered 100% confession. Like, I acted alone. Here's what I did. And was like, no, no, I don't believe you, guy. You're obviously covering for the government. Ugh, what is fuck is wrong with you humans? McVeigh picked up the truck, took it back to the hotel, and destroyed his Bob Kling ID card. The next morning, McVeigh and Nichols met at nearby Geary State Fishing Lake. It was time to build the bomb. Using a bathroom scale, McVeigh measured out the explosive mixture. There were seven 55-gallon drums. Each one was filled with one 55-pound bag of fertilizer and 20 pounds of nitromethane. In the center were the sausage-shaped explosives wrapped in debt cord, which again stands for detonation. Cord, just save time. Just so we're saving time on the episode. You know, we don't want it to run too long. Right, So instead of detonation cord, debt cord. (laughs) The barrels were lined up along the side of the truck. A long fuse was attached to the barrels and ran through a drilled hole into the cab of the truck. It was about 3 p.m. by the time the truck was loaded and ready. McVeigh headed out. He stopped at a truck stop in Oklahoma and walked to a nearby McDonald's where security cameras watched him buy his dinner. Just like six McFishes. Extra tartar sauce, please. After his fancy chicken and mayonnaise McNuggets meal, McVeigh walked back to the truck and spent the night in the cab. At 7 a.m. on Wednesday, April 19th, McVeigh awoke and drove to Oklahoma City. Just before 9 a.m., McVeigh stopped at an intersection in downtown and lit the cannon fuse. 
He parked the truck in front of the Alfred P. Murrah building, exited the vehicle, and walked away. At 9.02, the bomb went off. The Alfred P. Murrah building was nine floors tall with a front side consisting mainly of glass windows. The building housed a Social Security office, an office of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, a VA vocational rehab facility, the DEA, ATF, FBI, and a military recruiting center. Also in the building, directly above where Timothy McVeigh parked the rider truck, was the daycare that I mentioned earlier. The blast blew away the ground-level support columns that bore the weight of the floors above it. And just a side note here, uh, something I've learned from various documentaries, um, if they had earthquake-proof the building, this would never be an issue. You blow up the front columns, nothing happens. Uh, But it's Oklahoma City. Why do you need to earthquake-proof a building in the middle of Oklahoma? You don't. But if they paid that extra dollars, you know, this doesn't happen, but they didn't. And obviously, catastrophe strikes. Yeah. So yeah, the blast blew away the ground-level support columns. Uh, The remaining floors collapsed downward in a formation known as pancaking. Basically, the entire front half of the building fell straight downward. A structural engineer would later testify that the victims were crushed like grapes. Jesus. There were 168 victims of the bombing. McVeigh's target had been the ATF, FBI, and DEA, but most of the victims were civilian employees of other departments. The majority of them were female office workers. Nineteen were children. So, hardly combatants. McVeigh would later say he didn't know the daycare was in the building, but didn't seem to care too much about that when he found out. He wanted a body count, and he got one. They're just tiny stormtroopers. Just itty-bitty stormtroopers on the desk. uh, Get them. Uh-huh. Yeah, he definitely did equate all the victims to stormtroopers working on the Death Star. As emergency workers rushed to the scene, McVeigh walked to his yellow Mercury marquee and left town, heading north for Kansas. At the same time, an Oklahoma State trooper named Charlie Hanger was helping a stranded motorist on I-35. When Hanger finished up, he sped north toward an accident he had been working earlier that morning. He needed some more information, and he was worried that he'd get called into Oklahoma City to help with the bombing before he could finish his report. As he drove, he spotted a yellow As he drove, he spotted a yellow marquee with no license plate. Since state troopers will give a ticket to their dying mother on the way to the hospital on Christmas Day, you bet your ass that Hanger pulled over that car. Despite having just committed the biggest mass murder in US history, and despite the fact he was carrying a gun, McVeigh pulled over and tried to play it cool. The trooper ordered him out of his vehicle, but McVeigh hesitated. He thought about pulling the gun and trying to shoot his way out, but instead, he meekly surrendered. The trooper found the gun and arrested Tim McVeigh, who was wearing a t-shirt featuring a picture of John Wilkes Booth and the phrase, Sick Simper Tyrannus. Thus always to tyrants. The South is avenged! It's what old J.W.B. yelled when he assassinated Lincoln. It's also what Marcus Junius Brutus supposedly said after the assassination of Julius Caesar. You get the point. Did not know that. Thank you. Yeah, that's where J.W.B. got it from. Oh. Yeah. You think J.W.B. was just fluent in fucking Latin? You know, what? that's fun. That's a fun fact because he was in a production of Julius Caesar with his brother, Edwin, who was later like, you fucked up my whole life. Thanks, bro. But that's a crazy little tie-in. I did not know that. 
Well, at the bombing site, the FBI already had a link to the bomber. The rear axle of the Ryder truck had survived the blast and had flown 500 feet into the air and had smashed down onto the hood of a Ford Fiesta that was parked blocks away. The vehicle identification number, or VIN, was printed on the axle. It took no time for the FBI to link the truck back to Elliot's body shop, and they quickly found out that it had been rented to a man named Bob Kling. The clerk at Elliot's gave a description of the man who rented it, and a sketch was made. It looked exactly like Tim McVeigh. We'll post that on our Instagram. It it looks 100% like Tim McVeigh has this weird chin thing, and his head's really flat. and looks like a fucking scrub brush on the top, but other than that, like fucking dead ringer of Tim McVeigh. Mm-hmm. The sketch was shown to local businesses and motels. The clerk at the Dreamland Motel in Junction City recognized the man and remembered him parking a big rider truck there the day before. He pulled the file and gave the FBI the ID number of the man who had filled out the form, Timothy McVeigh. They ran his ID number and found that he had been arrested and was sitting in jail in Noble County, Oklahoma, but was just hours from being released. He was quickly charged with the bombing plot. He was indicted on 160 counts of murder in Oklahoma and 11 counts of murder of a federal agent. His trial was moved to Colorado because he would never get a fair trial in Oklahoma City. Why? (laughs) The trial wouldn't begin until April of 1997, but in the meantime, private investigators would leak an important document from the defense team. A full fucking confession by Timothy McVeigh. So crazy that he just fully confessed to his defense attorneys and what's about to happen. Like, oh yeah, I did it. And uh, here we're about to go to trial. We'll see if I say I did it or not. Yeah. Well, this was discovered by the Dallas Morning News and the author of our main source, Ben Fenwick. Fenwick was a freelance writer who sold the story to Playboy magazine. Both the Playboy article and the Dallas Morning News article dropped right before the trial began. Still, Timothy McVeigh pleaded not guilty, and when the jury was selected in Colorado, none of the members of that jury admitted to having read the articles or having seen the many TV specials about the confessions released afterwards. Timothy McVeigh's attorney, Stephen Jones, was a goddamn idiot and did everything he could to sabotage his case. His opening statement involved Jones reading the names of all 168 victims off one by one. Fucking terrible strategy. Just... Hey, let me remind you what's at stake here and read you off 168 names, especially 19 fucking children that have died in this attack. Uh, yeah, look at my, look at my defendant. He's innocent now. Like, fucking stupid. Just fucking terrible. He constantly referred to classic literature that none of the jurors had even heard of. He seemed obsessed with sex and sexual references. He came up with the theory that the real bomber was either killed in the blast or had fled the country. Prior to the start of the trial, he spent $15 million of the government's money traveling the world to try and find, quote, the real bomber. And he had actually suggested before the trial began that an unidentified leg recovered at the scene of the bombing was the real bomber's. Of course, it was soon identified, so, you know, mm-hmm. there went that theory. It doesn't Fucking matter, idiot. man. You give me... Give me $15 million to go fucking around the world to find the quote-unquote real bomber? Man, I'm going to try my hardest. Like, ah, oh, There's probably some here here in uh, Tahiti. Yeah. Yeah, is this guy in Bali? Probably. Yeah. They probably want to attack the United States. 
He calls into his superior. Jake, what? It's fucking 2.30 in the morning. What do you want? Well, it's only 8 here. But, um, yeah, sorry, sir. What I needed, I needed another advance on the card. <laughs> I'm, here, I'm here at this jazz bar, and I'm talking to this MILF, and I've only bought her $250 worth of drinks. I'm trying to pry some information out of her about this whole situation, about the real bomber. So I'm gonna need some. I'm gonna need some more money. Yeah. Okay. Just, just, just okay. It. All right. We'll see you soon, boss. Right. We got a rock solid case. Rock solid. She keeps talking about these things called Jaeger bombs. I think that might have played a role. So just send me some more money. We'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> the prosecution had its own issues, specifically with the way blast residue evidence had been handled by the FBI but they also presented 137 witnesses and hundreds of pieces of information of evidence over 19 days. In contrast, the defense's biggest witness was a woman who claimed she had seen two bombers outside of the building, one of whom was obviously a man of Middle Eastern descent. Even if you ignore the fact that McVeigh's deep-seated racism would have prevented him from working with an Islamic terrorist, you still should know that this same witness admitted on the stand that her story had changed several times, and she had memory problems after suffering head trauma in the blast. On Friday, June 2, 1997, after three days of deliberations, the jury found Timothy McVeigh guilty of all 11 federal murders. Eleven days later, the jury returned with their sentence. Timothy McVeigh was sentenced to death. For their parts in the bombing, Terry Nichols was sentenced to life in prison, and Michael Fortier was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Fortier was released in 2006 and placed in the Witness Protection Program. He got such a light sentence, all things considered, because he rolled over on the other two, which he was only afforded the opportunity to do because he didn't directly participate in the bombing. Yeah, and it's bullshit that our tax dollars are paying for his witness protection because he conspired against the U.S. government. I want to know where that motherfucker lives. I'm going to send him a strongly worded letter. Dear Michael Fortier, I don't agree with it. You did. P.S. Go fuck yourself. Signed, Greg from Hunter Proof History. I'm not going to sign it myself. He, he helped blow up the government. I'm not going like, to put my name on there. But. <laughs> okay. <laughs> on June 11th, 2001, Timothy McVeigh was executed by lethal injection in Terre Haute, Indiana. In the time between his sentencing and his execution, McVeigh told his story to biographers who compiled it into a best-selling book. Not once, however, did he express remorse for the lives he had taken. He said only that he might have given pause if he knew there was a daycare in the Murrah building and switched targets, but that the children were just collateral damage. Fucking piece of shit. McVeigh wanted revenge for Ruby Ridge and Waco, and he hoped his actions would start a revolution, but his actions turned more people against the far right white supremacist movement. So our only hope is that while he burns in hell, listening to that shit song, Bad Company on a Loop, he knows what a loser he truly turned out to be. End of story. Bad Company. Till the day I die. Till June 11, 2001. <laughs> when I die. <laughs> All right, Gregory. It is time for Oklahoma City's favorite 
segment of Hunter Proof History surprises slash misconceptions you might have had about this story. Take it away, you sexy beast. Oh, thank you. My biggest surprise about this story was that Timothy McVeigh was a card-carrying member of the KKK. Yeah. I knew he wasn't the greatest of dudes, obviously. Yeah. Right? I mean, I guess you you do that. You're obviously not the greatest of dudes. (laughs) I should have already known that. But I did not know that he was actual member of the KKK. Even when he was broke as shit, he scraped together enough money to retain his membership Mm -hmm. in the KKK. Piece of fucking garbage. What is your surprise or misconception? I didn't realize he was such a fucking nerd. Like, it makes sense when you start looking at it, because we both know these borderline nerds who, like, are kind of in the same things you are, video games, computers, all that shit, but you're like, that guy's fucking weird. The guy hasn't showered in a fucking week. He keeps bringing Mm. black powder to school. Like, he has, like, half a pair of scissors. Like, what is this guy up to? That was Timothy McVeigh. You're like that fucking borderline nerd. You're like, I don't want to be associated with him, but we both like Counter-Strike, so maybe. I don't know. We're, we're kind of friends. Maybe? <laughs> but that that was my thing. I didn't realize he was such a fucking nerd. I, I thought he was just a yeah. straight racist, going to take over the world, destroy the government. But no, he's a comic book, postage stamp, computer game playing nerd. And that was that was but the thing was like kind of like you're saying it's he was a nerd, but he wasn't necessarily smart. He just right. liked yeah the same things that maybe a lot of smart people liked, but he didn't come off to me as particularly you know intellectual. Right? Yeah, I he seemed very, very very basic and fueled in his hatred and ineptitude. Very susceptible. To you know, whatever propaganda struck oh, yeah. him at the time, oh. which yep, that's the I, type of people that are typically pulled into that shit. Is yeah. people that are looking for something to blame. You can say it because they're too fucking dumb to realize it's themselves. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Greg, take us to the house, guys. Thank you for listening. As always, hundredproofhistory.com. Please check us out. Check out the Patreon if you get a chance. Check out the Hangover episodes. We're about to record uh, number 28, I think. Very excited about this one. Yeah. Bass Reeves. There's a lot Very of excited. back episodes to catch up on. Otherwise, we will see you guys next time. Chris, do you have anything for the listener? I love you, and I will see you next time when we discuss whatever it is Greg tells me we're discussing because he's the main host. And I whip him. <laughs> he does. And I take off his chains once he agrees with me. All right. You've been a good boy. All right. I love you guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. I spilled whiskey all over my dick and balls. Where the fuck did <laughs> the lid go? Uh, we were actually going to advertise for Casper mattresses, but apparently. You know, a non-starter was. We believe in the products that we would advertise. That's you true. know, we have to believe in them. Absolutely, we're not just going to feed you guys bullshit, right? And so, 
the big hang-up was that they didn't make a twin-size mattress. <laughs> and that's what Chris needed. Absolutely. Because he stays in a, a separate room from his wife. Mm-hmm. And they didn't go down that small. And so we're just like, look, guys, we appreciate the offer. Mm-hmm. We can't do it. On On the flip side, those mattresses don't move. They're like memory foam. Like, they don't fucking spring up. So Greg was like, I'm banging all these MILFs from the jazz bar and the bed's not moving. That's not a part of it. I need this. Oh, the box springs. Like, fuck you, Casper. I need her to feel the motion of the ocean. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. I routinely go on Craigslist and look for uh, queen-size mattresses that are around. Uh, the. You know, you got to find that, that perfect middle ground. Mm-hmm. So around... 15 to 20 years old. Oh, yeah. Those are the extra squeaky ones. Oh, yeah. They got all the stains on them already. Everything started getting like overly synthetic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we just put the, you put the pea sheet over it. (laughs) It's non-permeable to liquids. (laughs) Right. You're good to go. Ladies, pro tip. If you walk into an apartment and the bed is covered in plastic sheeting, just fucking run. Just get out of there as soon as you can. (laughs) It locks when I close it, Chris. (laughs) You're just fucking American psycho. You're looking in the mirror and pointing at yourself as you're thrusting. Talk about Mm -hmm. Huey Lewis in the news. Uh. Huey Lewis in the news, baby. (laughs) It's hip to be square. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is the longest. Where were we? I don't even know. 